Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Jordan Weissman. Now, I have looked up to Jordan for years, and it was actually one of the best honors of my life when I got to sit on a panel with him at Gen Con's 50th anniversary. Jordan is a revolutionary storyteller, game designer, and entrepreneur. He's created legendary worlds like Shadowrun and Battletech that have resonated with fans for over 30 years. He launched his first company, FASA, at 20 years old. And he's also been on the forefront of creating new technologies for games. He's created virtual reality simulation games with Battletech. He's created brand new formats for miniatures tabletop gaming with Mage Knight and Heroclix and countless other innovations that we get into in the podcast. He's always pushing the boundaries of what's possible in technology, design, and business. And unlike most of the other people that I have interviewed on this podcast, the fact that he crosses that boundary of entrepreneur, game game designer, technologist, is something that was really an inspiration to me as I was founding my own company. And I've learned so much from him over the years since we first met. And now I'm very excited to share his lessons with all of you. So without further ado, here is Jordan Weissman. Hello and welcome. I am here with Jordan Weissman. Jordan, it is awesome to have you here. Well, thank you, Justin. I appreciate the invitation. You know, it was. Uh, I'm going to start with just like a little story because for me, you know, I've been I've been in the game industry for a long time, and one of the things that for me really made it feel like I I made it, like I really made it somewhere, was like being on a panel that Gen Con 50 retrospective panel with you. We did uh, we did a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh, um, well. It was. I, I have looked up to you for, for many, many years for multiple reasons. Um, as I mentioned to you then, not only creating great games, creating like legendary IP and, and stories that have lived forever and creating more companies than I can count, uh, as well as, uh, you know, sort of innovating technologically in the industry. So there's like a ton of stuff to cover. Um, I doubt we'll be able to get to it all in this in this one chat, but but I'm really excited to just start digging in. Well, no, I appreciate that. It'll be difficult to live up to, uh, to that intro uh, over the next hour. um so i always start uh these kinds of chats the same way because a lot of our audience are people who are aspiring to be game designers people who really want to like get into the industry and so i always sort of start with the question of like okay what got you what got you hooked here how did you get how did you become uh you know who you are and get in get into the industry and become a professional uh game designer um, wow. Well, uh, I mean, it was a different, it was a different time. All right. I feel like that old Obu online, you know, it was, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, I was, a, a severe dyslexic, um, and, um, uh, luckily at a very good school. And so they spotted that I was dyslexic, uh, back, this was, you know, like early sixties. And, and so dyslexia was not well understood. Um, but I had a very, uh, a teacher who was really with it and she suspected that I wasn't Dumb. I just had uh, this new thing she'd been reading about. So I was lucky I had tutoring. Um, so I knew how to read, but I didn't do it because it was it was almost like physically painful. So you just avoid it. And like a lot of dyslexics, you learn to kind of navigate the system and, and uh, you know, kind of cheat your way through school um, to avoid reading, which is what I had done up until I was uh, 16. 
and uh, and I had been going to a summer camp up in Wisconsin for many years. And and at 16, I was there now working as a uh, as a junior counselor. Um, and one of the uh, full fledged counselors, a college student, brought in this brand new game that had just been released called Dungeons and Dragons. Um, of course, you know Lake Geneva was only you know uh, about four hours away from where the camp was. Um, and that game, you know, I mean, it is it completely honest to say completely changed my life. Uh, the, the kind of social and problems here, you know, problem solving and, and collaboration and uh, just immersion. It, it was really fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't know what the heck anybody was talking about. Never, you know, having read Tolkien, um, no less, you know, see Jane, Dick and run. I didn't see any, I haven't read any of that. Um, so, um, so I had a lot of catching up to do, and and D and D and and was my kind of entry drug to reading. Uh, it forced me to actually, you know, finally there was something I wanted to read for me. So um, that's how I got into gaming. It became kind of dominant in my life really quickly, um, uh, and uh, just started, you know, running um, games at school. Uh, took all my friends back up, and this whole wonderful story of Dave Arneson when we bought our copies of D and D. Can dive into it another time. Um, sure. so yeah, but it basically got into playing and then, um, you know, started making stuff. Uh, and then while I was at, uh, school, um, uh, started printing stuff up, taking them to game shops and, uh, you know, offering it for sale. They were, my first products were deck plans for a role-playing game by Mark Miller called Traveler. Um, and Mark saw some of them, uh, at a convention at one point and he took me over and said, Hey, you want to get a license and do these officially? I was like, Sure. And that was kind of how I got started. That's awesome. How old were you when that happened? Um, I started FASA when I was 20. Um, uh, it was literally my group around the table. And I said, hey, I'm going to, you know, print these deck plans up and sell them. Um, who wants to be my partner? <laughs> and Ross Babcock raised his hand and said, yeah, I'll, I'll throw in a couple hundred bucks. And uh, that was it. We, uh, we ended up working together for 20 plus years. <laughs> That yeah, so that's that's crazy to me that you you had that that kind of sort of entrepreneurial spirit at that stage of life, uh, such that you you know sort of got investment and just started started printing uh, right away. What what is it about your sort of your personality or background that kind of made you made that feel like a natural thing? Because most people would have stopped there. They they're like, oh cool, I love games. This is awesome, but I don't know what to do, or maybe I can go find someone to work for. What what got you to be you know kind of just kick kick that process off? Well, I had a, I had a great role model in my dad. Um, uh, my dad was uh, uh, entrepreneurial and and uh, and actually uh, ran many uh, a handful of different publishing companies uh, over the years. So uh, the idea of you know printing and distributing something was kind of you know uh, I had seen that as I as I grew up. Um, of course, he also told me. You know, he said, whatever you do in life, don't don't be a publisher because it's a really hard business. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then what do I do? I just go off and start to become a publisher. Um, uh, but, yeah, so I, I mean, I had a great role model and I think that that's key. Right. You, It's uh, it's like the classic story. If you if you don't believe you can do it, then you can't do it. Right. And and so I was raised in an environment which which showed me it can be done. Um, and thus I you know believed I could. 
That's great. Yeah, it's actually one of the reasons why I, I, I started doing this podcast and, you know, talking to a lot of different successful designers to like show these different kinds of stories and like give people examples of like, no, no, look, it doesn't matter if you're dyslexic and you don't know that, you know, what your place is here, you can make it here. Or I have tons of other stories where people would just, you know, get started and start creating stuff on their own and either get discovered or start, you know, just working their way through stuff. And, and every story is unique, but has these echoes of common themes of like, find something you're passionate about, start doing it for free and doing it because you love it. And then, you know, over time, you can find a variety of different ways to, to actually make a living doing that. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree with that. I think, you know, and, you know, I don't know much about many other industries, but anything in the creative arts, um, if you don't love it, if you're not passionate about it, uh, then don't bother, right? You can't go into something in the creative arts because you think it's going to make money. Um, cause odds are it's not right. Um, yeah. and, and so you, ha <laughs> you have to do it cause you love it and you have this need to try to express it and, and, you know, uh, and, and really because you're driven to make people smile. Right. I mean, that's gotta be kind of core in your DNA, which is if you're a person who, who loves working hard so that other people have a good time, um, then, then you could be successful at this. Um, but you gotta, you gotta do it for that passion and then, you know, Hopefully money is a side product, but, but if you're going in just looking at it, oh, this is a place where a lot of money is. Uh, it's 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 not it's it'll, it'll be really hard yeah that's totally that's totally right i love i love the way you put that you're someone that's willing to work hard to make other people happy um because that that really is like that's the payoff right i mean the same sort of things we go to the you know conventions we see fans and you see how excited and lit up they are by what you do and it takes you out of this cloud of like how much in the weeds you've been and how many things you see that are wrong that still need to get fixed and you're like oh yeah that's great i made these people so happy that's great no, it's very true, and I think that's something that's always been really special about the the tabletop game industry is is that you know since its inception we've had this this ability to connect with our audiences through conventions, um, which you know uh, like video gaming didn't have until you know the internet, right? Um, uh, and and so that feedback loop that we had with our players was enormously valuable, right? Both emotionally, as you said, for us as designers, because those days get long and hard, and and it's great to get that energy from people to realize, wow, we actually, I am I am making people smile. I am making a difference in some small way in people's lives, um, and. Um, but also to you know help you make the games better, right? Um, the the feedback and the stories really do you know make the games better, uh, and so yeah, it's been a huge advantage that we've had for for what forty years now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this ties years, into I something guess. else. There's yeah. a message I kind of keep reiterating, which is the the importance of that you know feedback and iteration, right? Like nobody comes out of the gates a great game designer no game comes out of the gates a great game it's all about that iteration loop and testing things and seeing like okay this feels right this feels wrong this thing could be improved and going through cycle after cycle and and you're right to highlight that like tabletop gaming and i always recommend people regardless of where their interest lies you know start with tabletop gaming because the iteration cycle is so much tighter you can get feedback more quickly but when you're dealing with the digital properties it's much it's much harder and it's much more expensive and mistakes are much more expensive expensive how do you how do you work to sort of minimize that iteration loop and cost or what what lessons have you been able to apply from tabletop to make your digital games more successful well i mean i think um uh, i think uh, what a phrase that kind of used for many years is ttf right time to fail 
Um, and the, the shorter TTF is, right, uh, the better your yeah. game's going to be, right? Because you can guarantee, I don't care how many years you've been doing it, uh, um, whatever you write down first is going to suck, right? Um, and, and so it's all about minimizing that time to failure, right? So that you can like do it and feel, fail and do it, make it better and fail and make it better and fail and, you know, just, just work that cycle. So, um, I do think that is a huge advantage tabletop gaming has, right? Because it doesn't take you many months and, and many talented and expensive people to, to visualize the idea and get it to a point where you can test it and realize it sucks. Um, you know, you can do that so much quicker in tabletop. And, and I think one of the key takeaways on digital is that we we try to use tabletop as much as possible you know doing tabletop prototypes of our gaming of our games uh, to the greatest extent possible to to try to vet that stuff out um and then also uh, what we've learned over the years is on, on the electronic side is um that you have to assume that anything you're building in the beginning is throwaway code and 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 it is only there to teach you how to make the game better um, so we now have, uh, you know, it used to be like, oh, we'd be, oh, we'd mess around for a month or two and now, and now we're on the real development. No, now we look at it more like we will be in prototype phase for, you know, a year, um, or so. And, and we will then take that year's worth of work and we will completely throw it out and we will start over and write the game from scratch. But now we know what we're making because that year of prototyping should have been resulted in an enormously hacked piece of code, but a fun thing to play. Um, and then we throw all that hacked code away and we, you know, we capture the fun play and, and now, and now build it on a solid engineering base. Um, but trying to, trying to build, build, it's kind of like trying to build the arch the foundation for a building before you know what the building's really going to be. Like, is it a townhouse or a hundred story skyscraper? Those are really different technical foundations you have to build underneath the building. Um, so understanding your building first, um, is what really allows you to build a good foundation and it goes so much faster, right? I mean, you'll take what took you a year to arrive at. And when you go back and, and as the engineers say, refactor the code to make it, you know, um, actually shippable quality, it'll come back together in months, right? Rather than the year or so it took you to, to figure out what was fun. Yeah, that is, that is gold. And oh God, I wish we had this conversation before I tried to build my own digital game. Um, <laughs> um, because I did the same thing as far as the played and was at least smart enough to know I should be paper prototyping and iterating as much as possible until I had something really fun. Uh, but then once I started in the, the digital side, I was like, well, it's okay. I'll just build it in pieces and we'll just, you know, layer on top of what we already have and it'll be fine. And that was, uh, that was troubled, uh, to say the least. <laughs> well, we've all, we've all made that mistakes many, many times. Yes, yes. Well, that's, again, another purpose of the podcast is so people can make cheaper mistakes than we have. <laughs> yes, that would be great. <laughs> um, so I uh, just just to dig in a little bit more before we, we move to this. So when you, you know, you spend a year ish on a, you know, sort of, uh, you know, first paper prototype and iterate as much as possible, then uh, garbage code and iterate as much as possible. And then, OK, yep, this is fun. Now we know the thing we're building um, how much does the thing still change a lot from when that, you know, do, are there still movements back and forth in that last year? Or is it like once you got that defined thing now, it's just sort of polish and get it, you know, get it to work properly? Or do you find there's still some thrashing uh, even in this more expensive phase? Oh, no, it's uh, the game still changes, right? Because your prototype isn't, you know, 40 hours long, right? 
um, and your prototypes kind of capture the essence of the play cycle. Um, but there's going to be a ton of development uh, to, you know, uh, that kind of creates the arc of the play. So you're going to be introducing lots of new types of characters and abilities, and um, you're going to be introducing, you know, um, uh, new types of situations, all of which is going to cause you to, you know, to find how that works within the structure of where it is. So it's, it's not like it's, um, it's not the equivalent of a blueprint, right? That when the architect's finished and you hand it over to construction and just go, yeah, it's perfect, go. Um, no, there's still going to be tons of little loops. Um, they're just much smaller and less expensive now, right? So that, but but they should embrace the same kind of approach, right? Let's hack together a version of, of you know, the grenade launcher um, and uh, and see if it's fun. And now, okay, now let's go back and we'll we'll build it in the right way. Right. Um, and that's why what right. I you're designing, you're designing components within the overall structure and loops within the overall structure. The, but the overall structures are if maybe if it's not a, a blueprint, it's scaffolding is there. Yeah. And you're just sort of building in the the insides. That's that's the goal. Right. And, and, and admittedly, even like, um, you know, sometimes even you'll find pieces of the scaffolding that that as you've got much further into things, you start to, oh, wow, that actually, that piece of scaffolding is even wrong. You know, right. uh, we need to go back and, and, and swap it out. So it, it, it just, but it, what, the way to think about it is it's like um, um, a spectrum, right? And you're just narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the spectrum as you go forward, um, you know, in terms of where the thrashing takes place, right? In the beginning, you're swinging all over the compass, right? And then when you, as you move, as, after you finish that prototype phase, you should be kind of like, well, we're in this quadrant, you know, we're in 90 degrees now. And then as you, you know, as you get further and you, and you're, you're just narrowing that down to, okay, now we're in a 10 degrees amount of thrashing because we really got, you know, we, we're on the channel and, and you're in kind of high volume production, right? Yeah. The most expensive thing is, is to hit high volume production while you're still out at like, you know, 180 degrees of spectrum because you're going to make a ton of content that's not going to be useful. Right. Right. Um, but if you, you know, if you're, if you've hit your high volume content development, when you're at, let's say, you know, 45 degrees of spectrum, you have, you know, the, the percentage chance of, of the stuff you're building being useful is much, much higher. Yeah. That's interesting. I like the, this sort of analogy of the sort of the spectrum uh, and the, 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 the length of your, of your swings and variance. I, uh, yeah, when I, when I talked about this in my book, I kind of talked about the phases of design and that, you know, there's sort of like the, you know, high level engine and then engine development and then component design and component development and polish. And, and that each phase you're focusing on more narrow and narrow questions, um, as you, you know, it's never a precise, um, you know, transition, but it's like over time, you're sort of funneling down to, you know, little details as opposed to big big shifts uh and i find that to be a pretty important way to sort of think about as you move forward and it's actually something i've noticed in um in novice designers they spend a lot of time worrying about little details at the beginning yes when those things are completely irrelevant and you're wasting a ton of time i know you know trying to in, to stick with our building analogy it's like i'm worrying about the paint color when i don't have a foundation yet and you're just you know wasting a lot of time oh it's so true and you know another mistake that's so commonly made is like well you know we better get started on the cinemas like what I, like you know again it's like you know to use your analogy of the building and the paint it's like so wait now you're doing the flyer for moving in it's like <laughs> it's like, you know, don't you think you should know what the building is first before you try to sell apartments in it? Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it is, it is tempting to like, oh, let's get to the fun part and tell the stories. And it's like, the stories are fun, but they're there to support the game mechanics. Right. I mean, it is, 
you know, I love narrative games. I mean, that's my whole career is based on narrative games, but it is, it's a game with a narrative. It's not a narrative with a game, right? Now, that's not always true. Like I did a game called Shadowrun, right? Um, which, uh, which a lot of people's kind of initial review was, it was a game you played in, in spite of the game system because you love the story so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's obviously not ideal, right? You want, you want the, the, the mechanics and the narratives to really, really sink. Um, and, uh, and so you want to make sure that you're telling a story that's supported by your game mechanics that you can actually bring that story to life via the mechanics you've created. So, um, it is, uh, and also the story is going to change stories change, a t- you know, a ton over the course of, of development of, of a computer game or any game. Um, and so it is, you know, it, it's, I always say, you know, resist the develop, the, the temptation to go do those expensive kind of assets, uh, until the very end. Um, and you have to do a work back cause they take time, but you know, um, to figure out when you need to start them, but, but boy, really try to do, start all that stuff as late as possible. Well, so that's, this is great. Because uh, this transitions into something I really wanted to talk about with you. First of all, I mean, Shadowrun really was one of the most resonant like stories for me growing up. I mean, I played through that game and I didn't mind the game mechanics at all. I've played through that a ton. I played through the Nintendo version. I played, through, you know, I I've read through the books. I've like I became obsessed with that world and that universe. And and so I really did want to dig into with you like how does how does story overlay with design in your work? Like you know, so in my world. I am almost always a mechanics and game design first person. I, I will I will build a, what I see as a great game, and then I will make sure that there's a world that kind of fits to it uh, with some, but but I, I've paid a price for that in times, and I've, I've actually been over time changing my process a little bit more to incorporate story earlier to make things more resonant by the time we get to the end. And I'm curious what your process looks like uh, to make these stories that like now, have, I mean, span for decades um, that people are just, you know, still loving and coming back to. So... Yeah, can you talk a little bit about how that syncs up? Sure. Yeah, it's and it's different. I think it is different between tabletop and um, and digital, and any and specifically in in role playing games um, versus uh, even you know board games um, on the tabletop side. So I mean, uh, Shadowrun um, uh, was a you know a, a classic kind of RPG, role playing tabletop RPG. And so in, in that context, it was for me, the, the creation process was, was, was all about story and then uh, worked with a bunch of great guys to, uh, uh, to then build mechanics within that story that I'd come up with. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of on uh, back on the business side for a second, right? Um, this because these because this is commercial art, right? <laughs> so, so commerce and, and, and creation, um, are often intertwined. Um, uh, and in this particular case, I had been working on a, a cyberpunk, a cyberpunk role-playing game. Cause I've been reading a bunch of the cyberpunk books that have, that had come out and thought the, you know, the world was super cool. And, and so was working on a, on a game and setting, uh, in that genre. Um, and then Mike Pondsmith, uh, released, uh, cyberpunk, um, and as Mike is apt to do, uh, it was a really good game. Um, and I wouldn't have mind being like the second cyberpunk game, but the first good one. But I didn't want to be the second cyberpunk game that tried to be as good as the first one was. <laughs> um, makes sense. So, so, so I basically shelved what I was working on, right? Um, and uh, But it just kind of kept nagging in the, in the back of my head. And I was like, well, how do I spin it? How do I make mine different than what – um, uh, what Mike had done. Right. Uh, and, uh, and that's when I kind of like tripped on the concept of, well, how about if you 
um, you know, look at what the essence of, of what cyberpunk is all about, right? Which is this kind of dehumanization of humanity, right? Both on the, on the macro level with governments no longer being um, even pretending to be uh, concerned about citizens and, and ceding all that to corporations, which, which are only looking at profits. And at the micro level of humans not believing that the physiology they were born with is good enough. And so they're constantly, they're replacing their own physiology. So it is this whole kind of, you know, we're, we are, we're divorcing ourselves from humanity um, and from, and, and as a wider extent from nature. Uh, and it's like, well, what if we put a contrasting force into that, which is what if nature is now trying to fight its claws way back, right? And and the expression of power in nature is magic, right? And so I was like, oh, cool, magic versus tech, all right? Yeah, we've, we've, that's certainly not a new idea. We've, people have talked about that before. How do I get there in a way that's interesting? Um, and uh, and I my my dad was a a big um, kind of amateur archaeologist um, and had tons of books about the Mayans and uh, and Mesoamerican cultures and. Um, and so I grew up with that stuff and I was like, oh, wait a minute, um, the long count. And, uh, and so then it just became, oh, I can use the whole Mayan calendar as a way of talking about how magic flows, uh, from and from. So I came up with a kind of story insight and then just went crazy, um, pulling out encyclopedias because this was before the internet and you couldn't do a Wikipedia search. So I literally had like 40 different encyclopedias open all over the place, um, you know, doing cross-referencing and building my alternate histories. Um, to uh, to put that story together, uh, and then went and said, okay, now what's a game system we could we could bring this to life with, right? Um, and that was true even on, on, on Battletech uh, as a board game, um, uh, because uh, I think the goal in that board game was you know to to take um, kind of find a hybrid space between between a board a kind of board game mechanics, but RPG investment uh, player investment. Uh, and so world came first. Right. Uh, and I think that's, that was kind of, uh, in the eighties, um, mechanics weren't, uh, how do I phrase this? Weren't as elegant as they need to be today. Right. So it, the, the mechanic could have a lot more rough edges if the fantasy that the player fantasy was rich and deep enough. Right. Today's world, whether on tabletop or in in computer, you can't get away with that, right? Your your mechanics have to be much more elegant um, than than we could get away with, you know, forty years ago. Um, and so, yeah, well, you were laying the foundation for the things that now we take for granted. So, that's, uh, <laughs> well, enough. no, but I mean, I think all arts evolve, right? And 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 you know, the state of game development today is just way better. I mean, we're making the industry as a whole is making way better games than were made 40 years ago, right? Just, I mean, in terms of, you know, like I say, the elegance of the mechanics, the, the, the how long they take to play, their ability to integrate into our lives rather than dedicate your lives to them. <laughs> um, yeah. All of these things, I think, are, are improvements. And as a result, we have more people playing games than ever before, which is, which is fantastic, you know? Um, uh, but, it, you know, but it also means you have to approach the problems in different ways. Right. So I, I don't think like I'm working on a tabletop game with my son at the moment, uh, Zach, and uh, uh, and you can't, you know, it's just an example. We're, we're in the in the throes. We're in this wide swing period there. Um, uh, and it is a matter of like, you know, you can't start like I did 40 years ago. Well, here's a great story. Now let's figure out what the mechanics are to fit to it. You really have to kind of 
work both sides at the same time now and because the mechanics have to be much more elegant they have to then match to the to the fiction in a, in a, in a more connected way you know um, on the PC side I mean on the video game side um, uh, it is I think um, even more mechanics driven all right um, uh, and then you you blend your you build your story around the mechanics that, that are really that really work because you know uh, there and there's a difference between setting and story right in that you know a big setting uh, is really inspirational but a story is what you actually play but, but an individual story can be relatively is easier to reflow um, uh, to, around a mechanic uh, than trying to you know be stuck on a story element and then not be able to get a mechanic you know to mesh well with it that it, you know that you'll you'll get appropriately slammed for that so it's sort of easier to rewrite a story to fit a mechanic than the other way around is the absolutely yeah that's that's absolutely right yeah story is much more flexible than mechanics are so digging in a little bit more on on the story side so when i hear from your story uh, of shadowrun is is a couple of things that i think are really important to highlight one you know you said specifically you know, sort of commerce and art are intertwined that you actually stopped this you know the sort of game and story you were making at the time because there was another one out there that was telling the same story and telling at least as you know pretty good uh, uh, and had a pretty good game going so there's this this idea that i think also is somewhat corrosive that you know of the starving artists that like no 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 this is my pure expression it doesn't matter if there's an audience for it um I, you know, I think building, uh, being good at the job of design, uh, and is is also being understanding the marketplace, um, and and I think that's a yeah. I mean, I think that's that's key, right? As I said, there's a difference between fine art and commercial art, right? Um, and you know, fine art, the artist has to speak to themselves, right? And um, and commercial art, we have to speak to an audience, right? Um, and uh, you know, I, to, when <laughs> I often put it together as a, you know, fine art is done when it's done and commercial art is done by Tuesday. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I use the phrase deadlines are magic. Uh, it's somehow yeah. mad. Somehow there's a deadline and this we're running out of money. So we're launching is, yep, yeah, we did it. We got it done. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, and then I think there's, there was something else there, which is, I think powerful and and what I've been trying to go back to when I when I'm trying to create new new stories and new worlds is that you know you 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 tied into these fundamental not only fundamental resonant stories and kind of mythologies um and and use those uh but also the these these struggles that we can relate to at a basic level right like the it was Shadowrun your it's this idea of like technology as a way to improve ourselves but also as this thing that's taking us away from ourselves and what that means and then you know sort of over dramatizing it and representing it in this fantastical way i think is a big part of why people care and why people again you know however many decades later are like still super invested in that kind of world because that kind of story is even more resonant today in many ways than it was when you first wrote it. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's scary how much of, of the dystopian future, which Shadowrun projected, we already live in. Um, uh, and, and that, that's kind of frightening. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that's true. Um, that, you know, the goal, uh, is to, uh, to create stories that that can feel real, settings that can feel real, um, and they then connect at a deeper level. And and my cheat to doing that is I steal them, 
because you know that's so much better than trying to easier than trying to write them yourself. <laughs> um, I, I, the uh, but where I steal them from is history. Um, uh, I'm a huge history fan, and I read a ton and ton of history. And um, my kind of feeling is that if if it actually if a version of the story actually happened, then the kind of human you know human and and um, uh, geopolitical and social forces that made it happen feel real because they were right. So that there's kind of even if people don't know the history that I'm referring to, um, I I just feel that like those um, those things feel like they must they feel more organic, right? Um, uh, to us because because other humans have had made those decisions previously and and so some reason we can understand them more naturally than um, than trying to to you know kind of uh, like a novelist will do they'll write a character and that character will drive them wherever they want to go um, that's that's a different kind of thought process I'm doing when, when I'm doing world construction when I'm doing individual story construction that's true but world construction I try to look for historical paradigms um, to to base it on right. Um, and so all of the, the big settings I've done are kind of bringing together different themes, um, but then overlaying them on top of, uh, you know, kind of a, a historical framework that also gives me a framework, right? Gives me that foundation to help build things on. Um, so, which is, you know, a lot less scary than, than, um, you know, trying to every day have a completely clean sheet of paper. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, the, the couple of themes here, uh, here, you know, I, First of all, I think, you know, all creativity is theft at a fundamental level uh, and being able to steal from great, uh, you know, er narrative arcs both in real life or that people we already know are resonant, like, you know, religious stories and things that, you know, sort of the classic hero's journey type things I found to be really just, it's just great to rely on these things. We know that these work. We know that people care and we know that these things are going to be resonant, um, I find to be very helpful. Yeah, and one of the things that I lecture when I when I teach um, uh, about IP creation is um, this concept of say, uh, kind of boil it down to you know establish the familiar so that your audience can appreciate the exotic. Um, if everything in in your world is kind of brand new creation and equally exotic, then your audience doesn't know what's important, right? Is that a toothbrush or um, a weapon that'll destroy the world? I don't know because they're both completely exotic to me. I have no idea, right? Um, where and it becomes it, it becomes very hard for an audience to have their footing. They have they have to be able to feel some uh, some grounding in the world so that they can then you know kind of go along for the ride. Uh, I mean, I'll use a very old example, but it was it was a great one at the time. Star Wars. Um, uh, the first scene in Star Wars, right, is especially for the era, was completely mind blowing, right? Uh, spaceships and you know robots running around and and people shooting each other and this magical big guy in black armor is like, what the hell is going on? I have no idea. I'm just completely lost, right? It's all cool, but I'm completely lost. I have no idea. And then we cut to this to to this farm, which looks again completely alien, and I'm still lost. But then I'm in a scene in a kitchen between an aunt and uncle and a kid and i'm like oh yeah i saw that scene in my house last month right because the relationships between the people the the goals of the teenager you know the conservatism the conservatism of the adults was completely human completely identifiable and grounding for us 
now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, okay, I have a foundation now. I can now understand the exotic because the familiar has been established, you know. Um, and I think that's really important to do in our games. And I've made this mistake on several of my games where I've been like, oh, it's also new and different. And the audience is like, I don't know where to stand. I don't know where – I don't have a foundation you know, for appreciation and navigation through this world. Um, so it's important to, to be able to find that – uh, that find the foundation. In fact, I've actually taken it to the extreme now in thinking that you know the goal of is to change as little as possible, um, not to kind of show off by how much you can change, but to to change as little as you need to to achieve what you want for your mechanics and your story. That's a great that's a great frame uh, frame shift. I uh, yeah, I think similarly or maybe not as extreme as you, but I, I also talk about this this principle of, you know, you can't, your audience can't relate to your game if it's too new. Like trying to be too innovative and too original is actually going to, you're going to get lost and that that you really need people to be able to say, oh, okay, it's kind of like this, but with this thing, right? I can do an elevator pitch for my game that is like allows you to reference things that you already know. Uh, and if you can't do that, then it's going to be very hard to get an audience and it's going to be very hard to get people to come along on the ride with you. Absolutely. And I do think that you're right that this, the, the, that kind of, it's not just in story, right? You need to look at the product um, overall, right? The game overall and realize what are the new elements? What are the comfortable, what are the existing comfortable elements? And that includes mechanics. It includes monetization, includes story, includes artwork, right? Um, so that uh, if you're like, if you want to do a radically new story, then do it on a mechanics that everybody understands, right? So that they're not trying to figure out both simultaneously, right? Right. If you, if you want to introduce new mechanics and do it in a world that they kind of already understand so that they, again, don't have to try to absorb everything at the same time uh, and, and figure it all out. So, yeah, I do think you're right. It is mixing, looking at kind of where is the innovation taking place and not trying to innovate on all aspects simultaneously. So speaking of innovation, uh, I believe – I think this was actually the first time we met or if it's not the first time we met, it was the first time we, we had a lengthy conversation was on a panel about physical digital hybrid design um, at PAX Dev. Uh, uh, and this is – this sort of bringing in the new new technology and interacting in the physical world in different ways, be it, be it virtual reality or hybrid physical digital games. And you've you know been at the forefront of this since the concept existed basically. Um, and, and I really, um, you know, with both successes and failures, I really want to dig into this world because I have, I have tried and taken bites at this apple and never been able to kind of get to something that, that worked. Uh, and, uh, and you've, you've, you've lived and died on this hill multiple times. Uh, so, so I want to, I want to dig into that, um, as, as a sort of both what drove you to be so kind of, you know, trailblazing on this space and and what you've learned over over the years to to kind of make it uh you know where where we're headed but yeah by all means uh where, where do you want to dive in yeah so let's start early on let's start with the the kind of you know your first exposure to sort of the the concept of the virtual reality worlds and building those those awesome battle tech pods uh i believe was your first real foray into this yeah so like you know i think the old expression is you know whenever you're making plans god laughs um and uh uh, you know, uh, that's, that's certainly true here. So I was, um, my very short college career was at the United States, uh, Merchant Marine Academy, um, uh, which is, uh, the fifth, um, government academy. You have to get a, con you know, congressional appointment to it, just like for Annapolis or West Point or Air Force Academy. 
um, but it's to uh, to learn um, to either be a deck officer or an engineering officer on uh, merchant uh, ships. Uh, and uh, I, you know, love sailing, so I figured a life at sea would be wonderfully romantic. Um, uh, as I went to school there, I realized, well, maybe that wasn't the case. But um, uh, they just built this brand new thing um, uh, at the academy, uh, which was a, a, a ship bridge simulator. Um, it was uh, this $50 million building um, that had a bridge of a ship surrounded uh, by uh, projection screens uh, showing, you know, very, very low crude polygon models of, um, of, of harbors. And, uh, the most dangerous, uh, point in, in navigating a ship is not at ocean, but you know, when you're actually close to things you could hit, uh, which means bringing them in and out of ports. Um, and so this, this simulator was to help, um, pilots, um, um, pilots are, um, when a bridge, when a ship comes into, into a port, this is probably more detailed <laughs> when it comes to the port, um, they send out a, a local pilot to the, to that ship on a little boat, um, who then is the one who is in charge of the ship as they bring it into port, just cause you have local, you know, you have local knowledge, um, versus the captain who may be from across the world, right. Um, to help, help successfully drive it. And they needed a way to train those people. So, um, they built the simulator and, uh, students got to tour it once. We would never get to play on it. Um, but we got to tour it and I saw that thing. I was like, well, damn, that's the future of entertainment. Um, I need to get out of here and go make that. Um, and I had this belief that rather than spend $50 million on these giant mainframe computers, I could take a bunch of Apple twos, um, and, uh, and time together, there was no such thing as network at the time, but, uh, it was actually literally soldered wires onto the main, onto the motherboard of our Apple twos to make a serial connection between multiple Apple twos. Um, which if you do wrong, by the way, completely fries the motherboard and, and kills the computer, which is, I had Apple two number 500 and something and completely fried it doing this. So oh, wow. maybe not recommend it, but, um, uh, but went home and yeah, quit school, went home and, and tried to build this thing. Um, wait, so just, I, I got to pause the story for a second. So you, when did you learn to do this? Like, how do you even learn how to do this sort of stuff? Uh, I mean, even if it went badly, um, but, like, did you just start soldering randomly and see what happened? No, what, well, what so happened I, I had taught myself to code, um, in, uh, in high school, right. Uh, the pet 8k computer like showed up in our math department one day and, um, I basically just took it over and never left it and just became obsessed with learning to code and, and make games on that, that device and then saved up money and bought an Apple II and then built, you know, wrote games on the Apple II and, and, um, and just you know, was really into that. Um, I didn't know squat about hardware. Um, uh, but I found a guy in Chicago who, you know, who did, um, uh, at least enough to, to try to get us through it. And we, we, uh, I, I, the bottom line is it didn't work. Right. <laughs> I, I couldn't recreate that $50 million simulator. Um, but I, I, Oh, crazy. Yeah. I know. <laughs> couldn't just do it in your backyard then. But I did, I, I, we got, we got far enough for me to believe that the, the approach was right, right. That we could take microcomputers and um and establish a way for them to communicate to each other and that we could build this um so so i believe you know it was enough we got enough right that that i could see the future of what we what we needed to do um so yeah i mean being an entrepreneur is being stupid enough to throw yourself off a cliff on the premise you'll invent wings before you hit the ground oh i love that quote that's (laughs) that's wonderful (laughs) you just got to do it right i mean it's like you can't you know 
It's that there's just that it's, it's, I don't know, a combination of vanity and, and, and faith, right? I mean, um, that, uh, that launches you off into these things. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so I, yeah, that was, uh, that was the premise. And I, um, and I, I came up with this idea that we would create these entertainment centers that people would come and buy tickets. And then, um, you know, originally I was doing this all kind of based on a Star Trek bridge, right. You know, taking, it was a very literal translation from the ship bridge to the, to the star to a Star Trek enterprise or similar, you know, bridge. Um, and, uh, and so I put together a business plan, um, and, uh, uh, and went out and tried to, you know, show it to investors, uh, which I, you know, networked through my dad and my dad's friends to try to find people who, who invested in businesses. And, um, and you know, kind of the universal response was, what the fuck are you talking about? Right? <laughs> What's a computer game? Why would people buy tickets to one? Right. Who the hell are you? You're a college dropout who's never done anything. Um, and you know, I'm going to be really mad at whoever took an hour of my time to set up this meeting. Um, <laughs> so it's like, it did not go well. I'll just, <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and so I was like, all right, um, I backed, uh, basically said, all right, well, I, instead what I'll do is, um, take, uh, the, the concepts and apply them to pay, pen and paper. Right. So, that's where basically that's what started FASA, right? The, that, you know, that when I then asked my game group who wants to put in, match my $300 and become a partner and start printing stuff, it was because the plan was I was going to get rich overnight making tabletop games, which would then fund making uh, this. It was long before the term virtual reality existed, but these, these virtual reality, um, you know, experience centers, um, uh, it didn't. It took longer than anticipated. You mean you didn't get uh, rich yeah. overnight making tabletop games? That's so weird. No, we didn't. Uh, we didn't. Um, it took longer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but about seven years later, um, the FASA was really cranking, and um, and we just you know uh, I had been really constantly pushing the idea forward, um, and uh, and so uh, at that point we uh, we committed financial suicide and and launched uh what at the, what was first called the uh esb um for environmental simulations project um and then eventually became uh, virtual world entertainment um and it yeah and it really did almost put fast out of business i mean it was only my dad my at this point my dad was working with us and was only the kind of amazing you know magic tricks he was doing with <laughs> with our our suppliers and our financiers and you know to to, to keep us afloat while we we spent you know huge amounts of money on, on trying to, uh, launch this first, uh, first, the first network game ever available to the public and the first 3d immersive game ever available to the public. So it was, it was, it was crazy stuff. Yeah. That's, and then, you know, in, in addition to, you know, your, the, the, the quote of, of sort of being an entrepreneur, you know, throwing yourself out a window, hoping you're, you're going to invent wings on the way down. You're also, you know, overcoming, uh, you know, rejection and people, telling you constantly this isn't going to work you're facing new technical challenges that have never been solved before like what there's what else kind of keeps you going in those situations like where you're facing these you know failures and setbacks and near bankruptcy and and somehow sort of pushing forward uh is there is there something that you were able to rely on there either in your personality or the support obviously your father was helping you but like what what was that like well, I, I mean, I think, um, 
uh, a key element is this the support team you build around yourself right um uh and for me you know absolutely fundamental in that um yeah, obviously it's my dad right my, we you know my, my dad and i had the pleasure of working together for 20 plus years right um uh you know when fasa was was really growing quickly and uh i realized that i was not a great business manager right that that i needed you know, I needed to focus on the product and the marketing and the, and the development. All right. Um, and needed someone to really run the, you know, the business side of it. Um, so I asked my dad to help us find a business manager and we went out and interviewed a bunch of people. And at the scale we are, we realized we've, you know, learned we're going to have to give a fair chunk of equity, whoever's going to join us, uh, if we're going to get someone with a lot of experience, which is what I was looking for. Um, and knowing, you know, again, having read a lot of history, realizing that, you know, in most situations, that means you bring someone in and, and then they steal everything and they leave. Um, uh, so I figured if I offered my dad the job, if he did that, mom would yell at him. <laughs> so it was a defense mechanism. Um, so, yeah, I asked my dad if he would join us and uh, and he did. He left where he left the, the, at the time he was at the Chicago Architecture Foundation um, and he came over and joined us. And we worked together for 20 years. So th- having my dad there was enormous in- enabler for me. Um, but then equally as important was my wife. Um, uh, if you're going to be constantly, you know, throwing yourself off cliffs, um, you need to make sure that you have a spouse or, um, or a significant other who is, uh, supportive of that, right? Cause you can't, you can't fight a two front war, right? I mean, you can't, you can't be taking those risks and, and worrying about all that stuff at work and then come home and have someone who's, who's really upset about what you're doing at work. Right. Um, because there's it just like, I think would drive the crazy. It's I can't, I mean, I, I, no, that, lucky that makes, that makes a lot that of sense. But I, I've definitely um, had that same, that same sort of experience, especially, you know, when things are going well and work's going fine, then, you know, yeah, you can deal with tons of things on the home front. But if, you know, when you're, you know, in, in the shit and, you know, facing challenges and bankruptcy and complaints and things aren't working and, you know, you having a, a safe harbor is, is, is a game changer. It really can give you that strength back to go back into the front. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, you know, her support and involvement, I mean, she, you know, she is a creative director, uh, art director from, uh, went to Pratt, uh, Institute in, in New York. And, and, uh, and so, you know, we've, um, we've worked together now f- for 20 years. Um, uh, but, but even when we weren't working together, she understood, the creative process, she understood, um, the risks you need to take. And she was, you know, completely supportive, right. Um, of that. And, and so, yeah, that, that was, that was key, um, uh, for me, but, you know, in terms of internally, it's, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's like you said, you gotta work, you gotta be excited about working hard because you want to see people smile. It's being a, it's a showman, right. It's, it's, it's that, it's like, you know, in your own way, craving, you know, wanting that opening night with the applause and willing to lay it all down on the line to try to make that happen. You know, um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, its own form of insanity. It's its own form of gambling addiction, you know, um, uh, that, you know, that you keep looking for the, for that high, you know? Yeah. So, so then we get, uh, you know, you you do create this thing, and and we've it exists, and it's actually super cool. Uh, but but not not necessarily the uh, financial success you were looking for. I mean, I still see these these BattleTech simulators at conventions to this day, basically without that they they seem like the same things that you made back then. 
Um, so well, what, yeah, what, it's, yeah. I mean, they were, yeah, they, we went through, so this is the, I mean, there are downsides <laughs> to this, to this mental structure as well. Um, and, and the virtual story kind of illustrates some of those. So we created the first generation of cockpits and, and, uh, it did, you know, made, inter, you know, international news and, and, uh, and kind of pioneered esports. We had, you know, national and international competitions, uh, as we built centers around the world, um, uh, and so on. And, and yeah, and it was, um, financially really challenging even after we launched it. Right. Um, uh, and we were again, like right on the precipice of, of bankruptcy, um, when Tim Disney, um, uh, grandson, uh, uh well, son, yeah. Grandson of the, uh, no, yeah. Grandson of Roy Disney. Um, who was co-founder of, uh, of the Disney empire, um, uh, was, had decided that this was an industry he was interested in. And he went and he, and he, uh, and a guy named Charlie Fink, who was, a, uh, was working with him at Disney and a, a really good, uh, creative, creative leader as well, um, went out and they were interviewing different people in the industry to figure out who they wanted to get involved with. Um, and, uh, had, you know, met us and, and we spent a lot of time with them and, and they decided that they, to come in and buy a majority of the company and, and really start to take this idea out to the next level. Um, and yeah, that was, that was, a that was our saving grace, right? We were right, right, um, right on the edge there. Um, and working with them was great. Um, we, uh, you know, uh, but this were like my, my need to stay ahead, um, here actually was a problem because, um, with this new foundation, well, actually, even prior to that, I'm sorry, even prior to the acquisition, I had pushed us to a whole second generation of technology because I believe I was so afraid that people were going to catch up with us. So I quickly like abandoned the technology we, we had built and moved into a, a, a whole new technology because the first technology was a giant cheat, which is why it looks so good. Right. Uh, and literally we had all the people from the simulation, like the military simulations business coming and saying, how did you do that? Because it's so much better fidelity than what we're able to get because it was a giant cheat. That's why. Um, uh, and I think that cheat bothered me rather than <laughs> I should have, I should have just like, and let's ride that cheat to the bank. Instead, I was like, well, no, we should go back and do it right with, you know, a true a polygonal, you know, renderer, um, which we did. And so we, we kind of abandoned our lead, went back and rebuilt all new computers. Right. And, and again, we're literally building the hardware, um, and, and then re-implementing the game, um, and, you know, a year or two years later, we're, we're back with the same game that frankly doesn't look as good as it did before, but now it's real. Right now it's true 3D rather than cheated 3D. Um, and that, that was a mistake. That was just, I was just a bad mistake that, that cost us tons of time and money. Right. Um, and, uh, so you do have to, you have to watch out for your own drive, right? You have to, you know. Um, you, you can you can drive yourself off you know off that cliff um, rather than well uh, yeah it, it, I mean it, it's it's the essential entrepreneur's dilemma right I mean to start a company that's very successful you have to be both right and anti consensus right you have to be ahead of the curve in the sense that people many people don't think what you're doing is the correct path and you get there anyway. 
And to have that drive means a lot of times you're going to be anti-consensus and wrong. Uh, (laughs) And and so it's hard to know the difference or know when you should be listening to other people and saying, hey, wait, maybe this isn't the right path. Or you should be sticking to your guns and being like, no, 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 I'm going to be I'm going to be the forefront of this. Yeah, Um, I I still haven't figured out how to do that. I don't know if you have all this time, but no, I mean, no, I don't think there is a. I mean, so much of it is wrapped up in in personality quirks and and the team around yourself. Um, I mean, one, I think, as you said, key thing is listen to other people, right? Um, uh, you know, you, you do have to trust yourself, but you also want to you want to be open enough to to really listen to other people and and understand their good counsel and and take it to heart um, uh, is, is is critical, right? Um, so, like, so the cockpits that you see at the convention, those are actually the third generation of the technology, which as you say, people are still playing now 20 years later. Um, but that business um, did create that, a foundation which then we, you know, took all the learnings from that, pivoted to a PC business, right, um, uh, as PCs, home PCs got uh, into big enough distribution and and powerful enough, um, and that, you know, created the, Mech, you know, the MechWarrior series and Mech Commander and so on, and that, and that led to the acquisition by Microsoft. So it's a twisty, curvy um, uh, path, but eventually led to, you know, to a, to a, a nice outcome for everybody. Well, this is, this is another sort of secret sauce here, which is coming up even repeatedly in this conversation, which is that even the sort of quote unquote failures and uh, are, are set the seeds for your later success, right? You couldn't launch the cyberpunk game you wanted to launch because somebody else did it. So you ended up building a unique resonant, you know, new, IP. You couldn't, you know, maybe the the you know tech that you were building to create the virtual world simulations that are going to take over the world didn't quite take over the world, but that tech gave you foundations that you could use to build successful properties. And you know, you you sort of, if you can take that frame, it really, it my experience has helped a ton. When you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go out on the edge, and I'm going to hope I build wings before I land, but. If I don't, I'll find another way, you know, another cushion or another ledge that'll be that I didn't see before. I can now jump off that I couldn't before. Yeah. And I mean, I think as we were talking about like time to failure and design, right, that, you know, um, you learn so much, you learn a lot from the failure so that then your your next iteration is better. That's even true in companies, right? I mean, you know, I've... uh, We always talk about all the successful companies. I've had a lot of companies that were not successful, right, that... That uh, you know, that we actually had to you know um, lay everybody off and close them down. Right? Um, uh, I've had several of those as well. And uh, the key thing is to um, to learn from those to improve your chances of success the next time. Um, you know, uh, just like you did on your game design. Uh, but yeah, so you, you do have to kind of pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and say, all right, what did I learn from that? Um, you know, how do we do it better? I do want to finish this and, and dig more into the to physical digital hybrid design, but this this really does transition well into the other thing I want to talk about, which is how these principles of design really apply, you know, so well to business and to life in general. Um, you know, this was something we 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 dug deep on last time we we talked of you know like yeah absolutely this things like time to failure like trying to build systems that can resonate with people that are familiar yet different like that these same principles apply to building your own business or even to trying to figure out how to live your life right like you don't know what the path is that you want to be on until you 
you know, try different stuff. Like everybody that thinks like, I, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I'm like, well, do things. Eventually something will resonate with you and figure out when that doesn't work, then change paths. And then, you know, that, that these kinds of things are really have been more and more fascinating to me over time as I see these parallels. And, and it sounded like you've spent a fair amount of time thinking about this too. Yeah, one of the few benefits of being old um, <laughs> is that you've had time to had time to think about it and and reflect on some of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that willingness to fail is absolutely critical in a career, right? Um, it, you know, it, there's sayings have been with us forever: nothing ventured, nothing gained, so on and so forth. But you know, fear of failure is uh, is the greatest inhibitor inhibitor to personal satisfaction um, and, and innovation, right? Um, and, and so you, you've got to be willing to fail, um, uh, and and to do so, you know, publicly, right? Um, it it's hard because you know we've got so many kind of built up emotions around not wanting to be the person, you know, the person who's seen as that failure. Uh, I, we had a, an example of that even at WizKids. So um, uh, WizKids was born on this little invention I'd come up with for this rotating dial at the bottom of a, of a figure and how that could kind of change how miniature figure gamers games are played um and turn them from kind of lifestyle into you know pure gaming by by having pre-painted pre-assembled figures on these dials that got rid of all the tables and charts and and gave a character an arc over the course of a, of a game um and so that you know it was completely untested uh you know there wasn't any guarantee i brought it to fasa because uh, i had left fasa at that point even though i still owned a chunk of it but i'd moved on with the software side and so um, uh, brought it to, you know, to my partners at FASA and they were like, eh, I don't know, it's pretty, pretty out there and pretty expensive to do. And, and so, you know, we're going to pass. And so I said, okay. So I went and raised money and started WizKids to do this idea, but people left their jobs to join this little startup, um, taking very large personal financial risk, right? You leave a job to go join a startup. That's, that's a risk. That's scary. That's why you get equity in a company. That's why people compensate you for that because you're taking a personal risk, you know? Um, and, uh, and they did that with this untrusted idea. Um, luckily that worked and the company grew quite quickly. Um, and we had, you know, three big successes in a row based upon that invention. And then we, uh, we started playing with new ideas um, and we had a, a, a new type of game we wanted to launch uh, that was not based on the, the hero click style. Um, it was uh, based on the concept of these punch out styrene cards and building the game assets of these kind of very casual, quick levels of, of, uh, of, of gameplay, um, which on the commerce side was driven because we had been acquired by Tops. Had we been acquired by Tops by then? Yeah, we had been. So we'd been acquired by Tops, um, and they had this, you know, they had all this great real store real estate at the front of the stores. But it was all based on foil packs, and our miniature figures weren't being shelved there. Um, so I wanted to get a, how could we get a game onto that shelf, right, onto those pegs? And so the idea was to do a whole game inside basically a, a card pack, right? But what was fascinating to me was that our members of our team, who had only three years earlier quit their job to join the startup, were now like really reticent to try this new form of game. And I didn't understand it, right? I was like, there's zero financial risk now, right? I mean, the co the money we're spending on this game is like it wouldn't wasn't going to affect our, our bottom line in any kind of significant way. So there's, there's zero personal risk. There's zero financial risk. Why is this reticence here? 
And I realized it's all emotional, right? If we had failed as a little startup, no one would have noticed. It wasn't a, wouldn't have been a very public failure, right? Would have been financially very difficult, but not public. But now we were kind of like the golden boys of the industry at the moment, three big hits. And I was like, now if we bring out a game and it doesn't work, it's going to be within our little industry front page news. Right. Right. We'll be a very public failure. And, and that was really, really restricting them. They were very scared of that. Yeah. That's actually, that's actually really, it's this fascinating thing I was actually going to ask about because yeah, there's this weird curve. There's this middle range where it's like, it's worse for people when you already have success because people will know that you failed. And it, it's, it's this crazy thing. I felt it. I felt it too. And it's this bizarre psychological shift that, um, you know, it's, it sounds like either you're just intrinsically, you didn't feel, or you were able to get over like what, you know, what made you different? I, I, I don't know, but it's, but it's, it, it, it's, it's something built in, I mean, to the structure. I mean, like, cause it, <clears throat> we always say, well, why don't big companies, you know, innovate, uh, you know, and I think this is a large factor of it. Right. Um, and, and then you have the stock market, which reinforces the disaster, the, the problem of public failure. Right. Because now it actually has a material impact on the business, and the, all of that combined, emotions plus you know the kind of financial ramifications of, of a public market, means that it's much harder for for public companies to do truly innovative, disruptive projects, right? Um, and of course, they also their risk is larger, right? When you're a startup and you're disrupting someone else's business, that's much easier than when you're when you've got a foundation of that business and then you're going to disrupt your own business, right? That's obviously much more scary. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't, uh, I don't know. Um, can't explain it, but, um, but it, it's, it's, it's important to kind of gauge yourself on it. And probably, frankly, you know, probably has a lot to do with ego. Um, if you got, if you, if you kind of, I always say, yeah, kind of an entrepreneur has to have big ego, big ego and little ego, like big, big ego enough to believe you can do it. Right. And, and uh, you can lead people to accomplish this and little enough ego that you're, going to be open to when, you know, uh, to the ideas of your team and others, um, to help make, you know, help make the direction you're going on better. Yeah. And to me, there's like this, this almost, um, kind of selective blindness, like, or forgetting, like, cause everything, when you think of the idea and you think of where you want to go, you're like, okay, cool. This will be awesome. I can totally do this. And you don't really think about how much heart, like challenge and heartache there is between here and there. Like, it, you know, I always look back, I'm like, wow, if I realized all of this stuff, I probably wouldn't have done it, but I'm really glad I did it. So I just, I just constantly forget how hard things are for some reason yeah. when I'm like, yeah, let's go. And then I'm already in the path. So, okay, here we go. <laughs> I completely agree. I, and I equate this to like, like having babies, right? Because my, my wife, I go, we go back and forth in this. So I said, we've worked together for many years. We have three, three sons together. Um, and you know, she will be like, um, Hey, let's have another kid. And I'm like, don't you remember how miserable you were for nine months? And don't you remember giving birth? Those were not fun experiences. You know, she's like, she's like no, it was magical. Like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, uh, it was really hard. Um, and, you know, and, and on my side, it's like, I'm starting at the company. And she's like, don't you remember how hard those are? <laughs> you know, yeah. you're going to work really hard forever. You know, and yeah, and so it is, it is selective blindness. Absolutely. Um, uh, oh, and you're going to, you're going to love this transition for you. Because Great. It's because it's ego and it takes us to the hybrid you wanted to talk about, right? Okay, great. Which is the birth of Gold Marcana, right? 
Um, Great. So, so yeah, this has been, um, you know, a quest of mine for a long time to try to figure out how to bring some of the great things that, that, that computer games have given us over the years um, and merge them with, you know, the, the magic of being around a table uh, with your friends, right? And that, that kind of social, a wonderful, wonderful, unique social experience. Um, and so I've tried a couple things over the years and, and Golem Arcana was the most recent, which was based on a, um, uh, a, a technology that, you know, has used, uh, been used in kind of like many other, <clears throat> many other places and I figured, oh, wait, I saw a way to bring this together into this product. Um, and so we built a prototype and we took it out to conventions and, um, and people really did it, right? I mean, it was, a, um, we had, you know, spent a, a, enough money on the project to be able to illustrate the play pattern and, and how it was going. And we got really good feedback. Can you give a brief overview of the, of the mechanic just in case people listening don't know? Oh, uh, sure. So the idea is we, we developed a stylus and the stylus had a, a super high resolution camera, uh, in the front end. Uh, and, and then it had a Bluetooth, you know, a wireless communicator and, and, and the stylus so that, um, you would tap, uh, the board, uh, you would tap the figures. Um, so you would, for instance, you could tap a figure and say, this figure is going to move to this board location. And then the app on your phone or on, on an I, you know, on a tablet would go, yep, that's a legal move. Go ahead. So you would move over there. Right. And then you would tap, um, a different part of the figure and say, I'm going to shoot with this magical bolt at this figure, right? And you would tap the other figure and it would go, okay, um, you got a, you know, 62% chance to hit, um, roll the dice, right? Uh, or you could have the app roll the dice for you if you wanted. So it, it took all of the mechanics of the game, you know, all of the, all of the rules and everything and had the app, um, you know, work that out, uh, for you so that you could just focus on, on the gameplay. Um, and it, it, um, it, it had a number of other benefits, but the goal was to try to, take the WizKids rotating dial thing to the next level, which is to make the games even more accessible because um, you didn't have to, you know, debate the interpretation of the rules. Um, you, uh, you, you, made, you knew everything you were doing was kind of legal and it, it made the games playable by a very broad audience uh, of people. Um, and, and, and then the goal was now that we had kind of a digital overlay on top of the tabletop, we can introduce all sorts of interesting things like when I tap the square and move into it, um, I could encounter things that weren't there last time I went to that square, right? Um, because the, the app could be, you know, kind of random game setup as well as new events that could be downloaded um, every week. Um, we could, you know, keep that game enormously fresh and dynamic uh, with the same set of uh, same set of, of pieces, right? Lastly, all because it's a computer game, the data would then it has this computer overlay. The data would then flow up to our servers. So, like a computer game, we knew, you know, we we could look at the play patterns. We could look at that balance issues. Right, and we could use the data coming back from games um, to affect our overall ongoing story. So we could run events like like are typically run in computer games, where like okay, there a new scenario comes out this weekend, and everybody's playing it over the next week, and the data from uh, that scenario now determines that uh, a fictional event in the canon. Right. Right. So I was very excited about it. The team, you know, the, the team had done a lot of great work on it. And my partner Mitch and I and, and uh, Joe um, were like, okay, so let's take it to Kickstarter. We we you know we knew it was going to cost us a million dollars to make the product, right? Um, we knew we couldn't go ask for a million dollars on Kickstarter, you know, because it was just too big a number. Um, and so we said, all right, well, we we can we'll ask for five hundred, right? And on the on the premise that hopefully we'll go dramatically over it, but if we had to, we could find the other five hundred 
to finish the product if, if it just, you know, um, only made the 500. Because uh, you can't, you know, you want to make sure that you don't go offer something you can't finish, right? Uh, and so he said, okay, but but let's let's be careful. If it doesn't make 500, we cancel the Kickstarter. We just kill the project. We're like, yep, we all agree on this, right? Right. And we went to Kickstarter, and like in the first day, it did like 150 thousand or something. Like, yeah, this is great. You know, it's it's oh, it's the really, first day of Kickstarter is always exciting. It's cranking. It's gonna <laughs> go. And then like the second day was like. Yeah, and five thousand dollars more. I was like, uh, okay, we got a problem, right? Just went to crickets, right? Um, and we we should have we we had set a set of rules for ourselves. Like back to your game design for life, we'd set a set of rules. This is how we're going to play this game. And then immediately, our ego has got in the way, and we're like, I don't want to lose, right? I don't want to. I don't want to have this. I don't want to acknowledge that this is a failure in public. Um, and so we then just started fighting our way, you know, with uh, all sorts of promotions and 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 events and and you know expand you know kind of uh, add-on expansions and and so on to fight that number up to 500, right? Which we did. We got it up to uh, just just over the over the wire at 500 and something, right? And so it was a success. It was a dis- it was not a success. It was a it was a failure. We should have we should have listened to our own rules and not done it. Right? Creatively, I'm super proud of that project. Technically, I'm very proud of that project. Looking back on on my own performance of of ego, totally let our egos get in the way. You know, it was a bad business decision to do that. That should have told us that the market for the game is not big enough to support the cost it's going to take to make it. Right. Um, right. And then we had made it worse because we had done all these add-on packs and everything. So we we actually took the cost of making the game from a million up to a million five with all these additional commitments we made. Um, so it was right. you, raised, you raised half a million dollars and cost yourself more than that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we cost ourselves a million, right? Um, yeah. And at the end of the day, when the game came out, um, uh, you know, it achieved its goals and made the game super playable and, ex- and expandable. Um, and we were able to watch all the play patterns, right? But the, the ex- technology was expensive, and so the base game was a break-even. We didn't make any money in the base game, and so the, all the margin was in these add-on packs of figures, um, which, uh, which we were really betting on kind of a competitive play dynamic where people would go back and buy more figures as they came out um, to, you know, to keep changing up their armies for competitive play. And that competitive play dynamic never really evolved. So... People really loved the game, um, and they didn't feel compelled to go out and buy a bunch of figures because it was fun enough already. Um, and so, yeah, it just financially was uh, d- did not work. It, it also back to our previous conversation about innovating and too many things simultaneously. Totally fell prey to that as well. I think right, um, a brand new play pattern, brand new technology, brand new world. You know, um, and, and it was it was like innovating trying to innovate on every level so it does show you that even we say these things and we know these things it doesn't stop us from making these mistakes sometimes oh yeah well i i actually i've actually implemented this policy because i to me to me like you know wisdom is is basic practical knowledge consistently applied like we have all the information we need to be successful in life and to know, but we just don't do it. We forget, we get overwhelmed by ego, we get caught up in the moment and emotion. 
and it's just like you know so now whenever i i i sort of read you know i love sort of reading and learning new things but i have forced myself to every time i read something a new book i go back and i read one of the books that was most impactful to me i go back and i reread lessons and notes that i've read before because it's like the, it's just about being able to apply the things you already know uh you know and and even in in going through these podcasts and you know interviews and talks it's like the same lessons are getting reiterated in different ways by different designers and it's the same stories we all go through in our, with our own unique spins and it's just like nope this these are universal just keep i do i do this have to remind myself like yep <laughs> don't forget about this stuff uh it's it's amazing how how quickly we lose sight of of the things that we've learned through through blood sweat and tears over the years yeah absolutely uh absolutely and, and you know like again this one you know uh, ego, e- ego is necessary to be an entrepreneur, and ego is also your worst, your worst enemy. You know, so yeah, right, it, right. It's 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 like you know, if not a Yoda statement, it should have been you know, like all things in balance. You know, <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah, well, I um, um Mark Rosewater uh, had this quote that I've I've loved and, and used for years, which is you know your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness, and vice versa. Um, that that without without fail, the thing that makes you exceptional, there is a there is a dark side to it, and you need to be conscious of that. And so, uh, yeah, that like you know, as an entrepreneur, I, I sort of share these things. Like I, you know, I'm willing to break rules. I'm willing to sort of re envision stuff and go forward. And I'm and I have an intense focus. You know, will if I, there's something I'm going to get done, like I don't care, I'm going to get there. But it also means like I have terrible peripheral vision, and I will break. You know, be a bull in a china shop sometimes, and I will you know lose sight of of an important thing that needs to be there. And so I need to find people, surround myself with people that are going to like <laughs> knock me upside the head sometimes to remind me that I'm missing those things. Uh, so being conscious of that stuff is, is is important. And again, yeah, just reminding yourself like where, you know, not to lose the value of, you know, again, your ego or the, the things that are driving you, but also to realize where that that creates weaknesses and blind spots. So on the hybrid side, so we have so Golem Arcana is a great example of this. Um, to me, it is it's you're trying to create the hybrid side. You want to get the best of both worlds, right? So in that case, it's like all right, I'm going to get the combat resolution and complexity and hidden information and like persistent online world and tracking in with the tactile fun of moving cool figures around a board, right? Like that was the goal, uh, and I found. I, I think it's a great innovation, but there was a little bit of like still clunkiness around that scanning process. Uh, to me, it didn't feel as magical as I wanted it to be, uh, even though it did, again, innovate and get further than anybody else had gone. And I have seen you know, you, you've, you've pushed the edge of those boundaries um, in, in a couple different ways. And we've seen like the world kind of come back around to this. So, so other angles um, to, to discuss, like virtual reality has made a comeback of sorts. And there's this huge wave that feels like it's kind of, you know, a little bit died out, but there was this like, oh, it's, it's going to change the world again. Now it's really for real this time. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I worked on some virtual reality projects. We actually did a virtual reality version of Ascension, which is really cool. Um, we've done a, a you know worked on a, another virtual reality game called labyrinth and a few others which is really fun but you know there's just not an audience for it it's just not quite taken off the way that everybody said it would last year or two years ago um and then there's the augmented reality games which are you know like the pokemon go is the sort of most you know successful example of that i think where it's like okay it's partially the world and i'm holding up my camera to the world and it's, it's someone interacting but it also you know, all, all of these things seem to still fall short of like this this ideal that we have, and I, I kind of want to talk about, I guess, the ideal or where you see it going, or you know, if you were gonna you know push something today, where would you where would you be pushing towards? 
Well, um, okay. Yeah. Interesting and broad subject. Um, yeah. VR, yeah. Uh, having, you know, been a major player in, in wave one and wave two of VR, when wave three of VR came along, I was like, okay, I think we'll, uh, we'll set this one out. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I, you know, I, I love the immersion. Um, uh, but it, the, the, the kind of improvements, um, that were in the first wave of hardware of, of, wave through of this third wave of VR, um, uh, to me, didn't address the fundamental problems that, that exist in VR. Um, I do have to say that surprisingly to myself, at least, um, uh, there's a piece of VR tech that, um, that did really blow me away. It just came out. Um, uh, it's the Oculus quest. Um, and, uh, it is finally, I think from my perspective, a consumer VR experience and it's just beautifully done. Um, uh, it's completely self-contained. You don't have to set up markers all over your house and so on and so forth. Um, but it, uh, and it uses, uh, what's called slam technology, which is actually from, from augmented reality, which I'll switch to in a second, but it's, it's a really good experience. Now that said, I still get nauseous when I play it right? because, um, you, you have that kind of, uh, anytime you're, even though my body and one of the nice things about the the quest is uh, it is full. There's some full body maneuvers in it, so um, you you don't have as much of that kind of body moving one way, head head thinking you're moving a different way, um, kind of stuff that causes nausea. But you still it still um, can still give you simulator sickness. Uh, um, but at the end of the day, VR I think is always inherently going to be a smaller market because it is about cutting yourself off from the real world. And historically, that's not where breakthrough technologies come from. Uh, breakthrough technologies, if we look at all of the ones that have changed our landscape in the last you know, 40 years, they are things that enhance or augment or make more efficient our actual world, the real world. Um, and that's why I've always been a much bigger proponent and believer in augmented reality technology than virtual reality technology. Um, uh, I just want to push on that a little bit. So like, what, what does that mean? Like, how does like, you know, I mean, television and computers in theory have now sucked us into screens more than ever before. Is that make the world more efficient or those breakthrough technologies? Well, yeah, but let, let's look at, look at what, look where most people's time on digital devices are. They're not fictional worlds, right? They're Facebook, and I mean, Facebook is the single biggest timescape. They're used to their YouTube. Um, so these are portals into the actual world of people I know and people I may not know. Right. But they're they're all reflections of the real world uh, being brought to me through, uh, you know, this this very super convenient UI, um, as opposed to where admittedly television is an immersion into into fictional worlds. Completely agree with that. Right. Um, but it, uh, it is still social. Right. Like I'm sitting next to my wife, my kids, my family, you know, we're, we're still able to, what? But you know, right, right. we're, 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 we have a social experience while in, immersed in that. If we each were wearing our own headsets, right. Um, I don't think you would have that same kind of, uh, like shock and awe in the living room at the red wedding would be a right. different thing. Right. If, if all of us were immersed in our own bubble. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if I look at the web, like when, when the web first came out and we, you know, all there were a lot of us all like, what's the killer app for the web? And we're building all these immersive experiences. Like, no, you know what the killer app for the web is a pizza in 15 minutes and a cheaper box of Clorox. Right. <laughs> um, that's the killer app for the web. Right. Um, it, it was about how to make my real world 
better? How to how to give me better information? Like what's the where's the where's the best restaurant? What's the what's the fastest path to there? Right? It was all about how to make the real world um, better, more usable, more accessible. Sure. No. And I and I agree. I agree with you. And and, I, and I'm only pushing back because I don't know that 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 pushes away from virtual reality by default. And and I'll just say briefly, like the, the when I having this experience of building Ascension as a tabletop game, then building it as an app. Um, and for mobile and then building it as a VR, the VR is so much closer to the tabletop experience because of the social aspect, because I can see avatars for other people across the table because I can hear them talk because I can see them move. Yes. So it, it, in many ways, it can create this virtual presence that I think would be the magic, uh, but I haven't seen it, you know, really happen. But I, I don't want to derail you too much, but I just, you know. No, so I, I, I don't I, I don't disagree with that. Right. Um, because you do have that kind of uh, it's, you know, telepresence experience. Right. But where I see and this is really and it is really only a handful of years away. Right. Um, is that AR gives you that, but in the real world. Right. So what I mean by that. So, the, you know, current mobile based AR is already doing some pretty incredible based things. Right? Like, you know, being able to go to a piece of furniture on a website and then say, well, what would that look like if that couch was here? And, and actually then being able to look through your phone and seeing that couch in your living room and walk around it and see how it fits in the room, right? That's pretty magical and very, very powerful for like a purchase decision, right? Um, so we're already seeing that kind of stuff. And, you know, Pokemon Go, which was barely an AR game. It's really a GPS game, right? But yep. but it had virtual characters. I think Harry Potter is more of an AR game, right? Um, uh, we can dive into reactions to that at another session maybe. But yep. um, but if we go if we go a handful of years down the road here, um, uh, but but because holding up a phone and looking at the world through a phone is not a viable play pattern right it's not a, it's just yes yes it was, it's not magical it is it is boring and painful after a few minutes <laughs> yeah but when when you put on a pair of of glasses that are kind of like a slightly beefier version of a pair of ray-bans right and now projected you know into into your world you look at your real world but now there are 3d objects and or avatars um, uh, projected into that 3D, into the world you're navigating, um, that really is this kind of next next experience that I think is going to be enormously transformative. So in that model, when you're playing Ascension, you're sitting at your actual kitchen table, right? You're you're using physical cards, right? The your friend who is who you see them sitting on the other side of your table is actually you know on the other side of the planet, and you see their cards physically on your table. Right. So it is, that to me is that that takes telepresence now and makes it within my real world. Right. So that when, you know, my wife walks in, I see her. I'm, Hi, how you doing, honey? It's like I, there isn't that kind of like I'm I, she is now part of my world, even though I'm playing this game with you on the other side of the world. Right. So you, you've kind of combined the best of both of those experiences. And, and I don't think it is that far away. Um, uh, so that that's very much kind of where my direction um you know wants to be in terms of tabletop is how, how do we anticipate how do we how do we you know build the foundations to start to create that kind of experience right um it's yeah. it's a ways out um but i think it's going to be super super impactful on 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 the world overall and and on gaming so the prediction game is always is always a is always a, a, a fun one but when you say not you know a ways out or near what what what's your estimate 
if you would say that I'm going to have these, you know, the better, the better Ray-Ban Google Glass thing that will, will work this way? Um, well, there's a, a company called Enreal um, that will be uh, – has announced that they're going to be shipping a set of the Ray-Ban type – a Ray-Ban level of, of, of kind of uh, encumbrance um, set of AR goggles uh, this Christmas for 500 bucks. Um, wow. Now that it'll have a, a thin USB cable that connects to either your high-end Android phone or their own little processing puck, um, it is not anywhere near fully as featured as it as it needs to be. I think to to take that huge next step, but it is um, it it is an amazing step forward, and it's it's already kind of not quite consumer level costing, but getting close, right? So yeah. I, I think that the true inflection point is probably four to five years out in terms of when we start to see, you know, um, uh, real consumer grade uh, um, experiences with because that the end reel is, is missing a couple of the key things that I would like to see in, in a fully kind of um, uh, a full setup for augmented reality. But it's again, it's a phenomenal step forward. Um, so I, I think it's probably four or five years uh, that we're going to, so it's not that far out, right? Yeah. That's, um, that's only, that's only two product life cycle. That's two product dev cycles from a software standpoint. Right. Um, right. so it's really, it's, uh, it's not, it's, it's not, I don't think it's science fiction. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's reality and it's, it's going to be, uh, going to be interesting. Well, it is, uh, there's, there's so much more that I can dig into on this, on this topic and others, but, uh, I know we are running short on time. Uh, so we may have to continue in a part two. Um, what I want to uh, give people an opportunity that want to learn more about the stuff that you are, uh, you are up to want to find you online, want to play your games. What's, uh, what are the resources? Where should they go? Well, I'm kind of, I actually don't participate that much in social media. I know, which sounds weird, but I just never really, for some reason, uh, uh, so I have a Facebook page, but I never go there. So don't bother with that. Um, uh, I mean, uh, Hairbrain Schemes um, is uh, uh, where we're developing PC games. Um, and uh, we have some super cool stuff coming, which I can't talk about, but very excited about. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, on the tabletop side, um, uh, we've got uh, a new thing I've been working on with uh, my son, Zach, um, which uh, hopefully will be, probably not too far after this podcast comes out, we'll be trying to bring it to Kickstarter. And it, it actually does have a, uh, it is a, a physical digital hybrid game. So it's, it's very apropos. So, so maybe what we should do is we'll do another session. I can talk about that more. All right. And, uh, and we can, we can pick up on the subject. That sounds perfect. I can't wait. This has been such a great conversation. I'm, I'm looking forward to many more. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time, Jordan. And uh, we will, we will chat again soon. It's my pleasure, Justin. Great, great to talk and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step -step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.